This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Time and pacing in role-playing. The 2012 U.S. election. Game stores great and adequate. And sex, spies, and David Petraeus. Once more, we enter the familiar Cheeto-stained confines of the gaming hut, and in this uh, week's installation thereof, Robin has a recondite analogy to make. So, Robin, why don't you recondite us up? So I recently went to see a really fascinating art installation that's currently here in Toronto at the Power Plant and previously was at the Tate Modern in London and presumably will continue to wend its way around major cities that have places that uh, show video art installations. And this is called The Clock by Christian Marclay, or as I subtitled it, it's Robin Williams, so shut the hell up. Um, so what this is, uh, is a, a 24-hour loop of clips from films and a few little television shows snuck in there as well from the uh, length and breadth of film history and not only English language films, but uh, French and Japanese and uh, other nationalities undoubtedly sneaking in there as well. And they're all little clips around the notion of clocks and time. So what Marclay has done is assembled a series of clips that correspond to whatever real time it is in the 24-hour looped span of this video installation. So when you are there at 4.23 p.m. in the afternoon, clips where the clocks and watches from all of these different movies are set to 4.23 appear. And as you uh, sit there and watch all of these films, partly if you're a film buff, you're just trying to place all of these decontextualized clips so that, uh, unfortunately, if you're sort of sitting there and hoping for a degree of silence and hoping that you can appreciate this without listening to the loud elderly lady sitting in the couch next to you perpetually loudly jabbing her husband by the elbow whenever Robin Williams appears and asking who that is. Uh, hence the subtitle, It's Robin Williams, Now Shut the Hell Up. Um, it has this really interesting effect of sort of elongating time and make you thinking about time in movies. For example, there's a sequence that in the original would have been a montage sequence of uh, George Chakiris in some French movie I did, could not identify, sitting in a French cafe, obviously waiting for a guy to show up. And so in the original film, obviously, there would be shots of him looking up at the clock and then dissolves and then the clock would show that time had passed and then there'd be another dissolve. Whereas here, it's all elongated in time so that interspersed with all the other clips in the film, it unfolds in real time. And what you do with this installation is you just show up, you get in line, and there's only about 60 people who can sit in the uh, gallery and watch it, and they filter, uh, filter out whenever they want, and as people filter out, you get to filter back in. And we happen to be there near the end of the day on the Sunday, so that as the gallery was closing, but the loop was not ending, they just leave it on, at 5 p.m., there was a bunch of clips about being kicked out of the library at, <laughs> at 5 p.m. So, um, and there are different times when you can go and it's open for a full 24-hour period so that you can test the limits of your endurance if you ever wanted to do so. I can't imagine anyone wanting to spend more than about 90 minutes with it, but it's a different 90 minutes depending on where you go. But anyway, seeing time refracted and put in the foreground uh, in a way that it isn't normally in film, although time matters greatly in film, which is something that depends on pacing, also made me think about time and pacing in other narratives and in gaming narratives and traditionally uh, how we've handled that. So I think I'll throw, after this elaborate intro, I thought I would throw back to you, uh, as a GM, what would you say are the instances where time really comes up in your gaming? Um, well, uh, do you mean time in the game world or time experienced at the table? Because those are obviously two different questions. You can pick either one because those two things uh, relate to one another. Well, um, in uh, time in the game world comes up at times when you are uh, concerned with travel time, uh, concerned with uh, any sort of 
uh, thing, you know, it's going to take 24 hours for the test to come back, that kind of uh, uh, space filler or um, uh, suspense uh, creation. Obviously, you have 10 seconds before the bomb goes off type questions on the other end of it. And then, obviously, around the game table, time passes, and you become conscious of it primarily, as uh, you imply, as a function of pacing, of, you know, we've spent an awful lot of time on this combat, or whether there's only an hour left before we all have to leave, we should maybe, you know, try and uh, speed things up and get to the, the, the big monster fight. Because in gaming, we're used to having those two parallel tracks, the real time that you're physically present around the table, and the time that the characters experience uh, be very separate, but sometimes we want to insist on there being closer to one another. So, for example, during a fight, we're used to, well, a round takes six seconds, but because we have all of these elaborate tactical rules, it may take us ten minutes in a combat-heavy game to adjudicate exactly what happens in each six-second slice of time, so that the time experience that the players have is very different than the time experience that the characters have, to the extent where the players are taking a lot of time choosing what it is that their characters are going to do next, where if they were really in that situation with a chaotic fight going on, the ability to be tactical and to make smart decisions in, in a real fight kind of goes out the window. But we're not interested so much in simulating a real fight, although we want to think of it as realistic. At least in this area of time, we are interested in creating a tactical gamist experience where you are weighing all of the options and trying to make the absolute smartest one as opposed to just not getting your butt shot off as is often the case in a, a real battle. So uh, is your theory then that the notion of having both of these times running simultaneously in our head uh, informs the game experience and in, in terms of enriching it? Or do you think that it is something that if we could ideally do away with one of those two uh, ticking clocks, uh, we'd have a better, uh, more pure either experience of tabletop play or a, or better immersion into the into the reality of the of the story. I, I would argue the first that it's a complex interaction that we are sometimes insufficiently aware of and are not always, or or rather that our judgment of how time matters varies situationally. So, for example, the whole pacing question of how to cut out the uninteresting bits of an experience, but still make it feel like time has passed. So, for example, you mentioned travel times, and we are used to, for example, in the epic fantasy genre, as typified by Tolkien, that a part of the story where the characters experience a long, grueling journey should in some way feel long and grueling on the page as you read it. And the problem with that in a gaming situation is that we do not normally associate a long, grueling experience with entertainment, but we're used to having uh, things happen. And so the question becomes, how can you convey the feeling of a long period of time having passed and that the passage of time is somehow uh, punishing to the characters or is a kind of obstacle that they've had to overcome without actually playing out not only with no regard to real time, but even you know, not even a big chunk of a game session. I, I, I often consider that a subset of the larger uh, problem of how to do uh, sort of man versus nature or endurance tests in a game that make it at all interesting, you know, because if you're, you know, role-playing out some crossing of Antarctica for whatever reason, you know, it, it should not simply be 60 consecutive save versus frostbite rolls, right? There should be something to to add drama to it, even though obviously part of the realism of crossing Antarctica is that it's horribly, horribly tiresome and boring, and it is 60 uh, consecutive save versus frostbite rolls just experienced, you know, on each of the days that you have to wake up in bloody Antarctica instead of, you know, a nice warm bath somewhere. So I, I guess the, you know, the notion of, of time passing in that way, I almost see as a, a subset of all the general uh, questions about gaming out anything that is not a human interaction, or you know what I mean, a, in, some sort of interaction with with an active uh, partner or opponent. Yes, where a human can be read as kobold or automaton or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and part of this is the relationship between agency and pacing, because the thing that is 
uninteresting about 30 consecutive rolls against Frostbite is that the character isn't really doing anything, that they are just, the question is just how much attritional damage do you suffer before you get to the next station in the narrative where you get to do something. And so the question then becomes, how do you turn that on its head so that the arduous journey becomes a series of choices made by the characters and you just, and pacing wise, you just focus only on those choices and create the emotional feeling of there having been an arduous journey without making it actually arduous for the players. So one thing that I've found myself doing recently is when the narrative calls for such a thing is to say uh, an arduous journey ensues, each of you underwent a challenge during that journey that allowed you to contribute to the group's progress and survival, which in some cases may have had a cost to you. Describe what it was that you did to help the party move forward, and then the player describes whatever it is. So that also throws the narration into the player hands rather than making them sitting back and being the passive target of a bunch of time description. And then there, you know, if there's a role involved or some other mechanic that determines whether you succeed or fail, failure does not prevent you from moving forward, but it induces a cost of moving forward. So that that cuts the uh, time spent on that activity to just the interesting bits. And likewise, often uh, in particularly in earlier game designs, you had the idea that time cost to the characters was a valuable uh, cost mechanism for different powers or abilities or whatever. So that, uh, you know, in a D&D game, well, you can do this spell, but it's going to cost you two days of your time to do it, for example. And lots of different uh, early uh, tech building systems had a similar cost structure. But of course, the problem with that is that uh, in real life, something taking me two days to do is a real cost to me. But in a game session, un unless you're going to play out that two days, which of course you're not going to do, all that does is it leaves the other players sitting around waiting for the guy who has to take two days to do something to do it. So that's another sort of classic timing challenge is how you keep everybody involved at the table when one of the players has been hit with a, a time cost. And one of the solutions to that, obviously, is to, uh, as designers, not to design rules that assume that cost to the character is a cost that is actually borne by that player, when in fact it's borne by the GM and everybody sits stuck doing nothing while that character gets to do something that is presumably interesting. Although the, uh, the, the counterexample that occurs to me when you say that, of course, is Ars Magica, where pretty much everything that you want to do as a wizard takes a huge amount of time to research a spell or to gather weiss or whatever it happens to be, and the fun of the design is such that you have characters, you have players who are seeking out uh, the kinds of things that they know will take, you know, season upon season to do, and then implicitly surrendering spotlight time to the other characters who are not doing that. And the combination of, uh, of troop-style play and genuinely valuable results and genuinely interesting uh, you know, you might call it a micro game or a, or a sub activity, uh, going on during the Ars Magica campaign creates a really terrific sense of, of time moving along. And I imagine that, uh, something like, uh, the Pendragon campaign where there's basically one adventure per year that, that drives the story has a similar effect. And then in the winter, you figure out, you know, how many of your kids died and did the rye crop come in and you, you play sort of a little micro game to determine how well your little fief did. Yeah, I think definitely Ars Magica created this sort of killer app that made research time work because, as you suggest, it gives you other characters who can go around making choices and do interesting things while your wizard character is stuck up in the lab doing homework. And uh, also Pendragon, of course, as you suggest, has a really interesting time scale because we are used to games that basically for the length of a campaign are going to be kind of continuous uh, without big chunks of downtime in the middle where you flash forward to the new thing. But uh, Pendragon, very consciously, as you suggest, uh, takes you over a period of many years and does that 
by building in as as the subactivity the choices that you make that aren't happening in real time but are happening in a sort of a a, a chronicle time uh, as it were yeah another example of a game that really works well with uh, the rhythms of time is mouse guard uh, where there is uh the player turn, which is sort of the spring and summer, and then the GM turn, which is the fall and winter. And, the you know, you, you go out and you're, you're awesome little mices in the forest doing awesome mice things when everything is nice, and then when it starts getting bad, then that's when the GM comes back and hoses you uh, in the winter. And there's a really strong uh, sensation of seasons uh, and uh, and the, sort of the interplay of, of specifically natural time with the game that when I looked at Mouse Guard, I said, there, this is the, this is the Tolkien killer app. Uh, to make those endless walks across the damn dead marshes something is you try and figure out a, a Tolkienian sense of time rhythm and you are you are so much closer. I think that if we, you know, when we get to a a, a position where, you know, uh, adventurous travel can actually work in a game, I, th- I think Mouse Guard is going to be one of the big components that points us that way. And another general issue surrounding pacing is that, of course, everybody's definition of what should be edited out is different. By definition, a narrative is like life with all the boring bits cut out, but different people at the table may have a different idea of what is boring. So, for example, you may have a situation where the GM and the uh, perhaps one of the players is extremely interested in going through an almost sort of real-time exploration of everything in the environment, even if... 99 out of 100 of the spaces that you explore are empty and full of dust and bones, uh, whereas someone who is uh, not interested in a series of vividly described null results is going to be crawling the walls at that and want the DM to leave out all of the realistic but to them uninteresting spaces that are just empty. And so there you have a situation where uh, somebody is vividly engaged with what's going on and the other person thinks of that as fat that should be uh, cut out. When I designed and wrote Feng Shui, uh, one of the sort of pushbacks on some of the advice that it was given is that that game suggests that you'd be really aggressive in cutting out anything that doesn't resemble an action movie so that if the there's one of the players who really enjoys the whole logistical question of how they get their guns, but it's just a side issue for the plot. You just cut ahead and say, now you've got your guns. Or quite often players will fixate on solving a quite trivial problem that doesn't really move the story forward. Often, uh, depending on the tech level, it's just a question of how do we get back together again and have a conversation about what we've learned. And that's something that I tend to, as a GM, uh, cut out in hopes that they will then, you know, have their conversation and move on to a more interesting uh, logistical issue than who telegraphs who and who waits at the phone booth and how do they meet up exactly. And, and you'll see that, of course, in fiction a lot, which is that they will just cut ahead to the moment when everybody's back together without bothering to show you the boring uh, logistical issues that they overcame to meet up. There's a terrific uh, Umberto Echo line that uh, if in a movie it takes longer for the characters to get to a place than you think uh, you want to spend uh, watching, that that movie is pornography, because <laughs> because the only the only uh, uh, thing that uh, that those sorts of transition scenes accomplish is to expand uh, the time for the audience between uh, money shots, <laughs> and I'm not sure that that's necessarily immediately applicable to uh, to game design, but I guess it's an interesting. Uh, question in terms of you know, where are your money shots taking place and how much time do you want to spend on those be- before they themselves become the thing that a player is uh, you know horribly bored with like the guy in in the combat who's either you know he got knocked out early or and so he sits there while there's you know two more hours worth of of, of dice rolling or you know he only has one thing to do he casts you know increase morale every round or or some equally uh, standardized activity, and then it has no real tactical choices to make in a highly tactical uh, battle setting. And I guess, so, you know, every player has got their own, you know, waiting around for the good stuff part, and that obviously shifts 
not just from player to player, but from game to game. And in film, there are moments uh, which in my Hamlet's hit points beat analysis system I call gratification moments, where the characters are just transitioning from one location to the other, but they're doing so in a cool fashion that uses cinema's attraction for forward movement and vehicles and cool music. So, uh, you know, for example, in a Beat Takeshi movie or often in a Tarantino movie, there are moments, uh, all sorts of directors use this, where the characters are just moving from place to place and being cool. And it's be an interesting challenge to find a way to translate that very sort of surfacey plastic uh, cinematic technique into role-playing games. So you might you know, as the characters are all, as your vampire characters are moving from uh, the meeting to the, uh, in their headquarters to the confrontation with the guys in the rival covenant, you could ask all the players to just say, on the way, you look extremely cool. Describe your coolness. And, you know, you could play a music cue. And that's, uh, you know, it's not pornographic, but it's definitely uh, gratifying to think of your characters as, uh, being sort of masters of time and that the way that they spend time and move from place to place is inherent to their badassery. It, it sends a signal about what kind of awesome they are. The, 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 the parallel that I was, I was thinking of earlier in our talk, uh, when we were talking about cinema, is uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where there's the long period where uh, Clint Eastwood is being dragged through the desert by Eli Wallach on the end of the rope. And, uh, and being tortured and his ability to survive that is part of what makes, you know, Clint Eastwood awesome. But, and when we're to get, we're given to understand that this high constitution score is, is one of the great things about, uh, Blondie, his character, but the actual, you know, lived moment of, of when you watch it on the film, you are really just waiting for the period where they run into the, the wagon and Eastwood is able to turn the tables by talking to the guy who knows where the gold is buried. Right, and that's that's what I call an anticipation beat, which is building up your desire for uh, the inevitable comeuppance of Tuco and making you really, really want that moment. And it's a question mm -hmm. of a you know being a master filmmaker like Leone to perfectly elongate that right to the right stage where you know when it finally happens, the gratification is all the more intense. Yeah. And uh, speaking of time, we've uh, used up our allotted share of it for this segment, so we will now uh, exit the gaming hut and proceed toward another hut. And that hut is the Politics Hut. Uh, a hut that comes with a disclaimer in which uh, Ken and I discuss the political events of the day, but remind you that although Ken is a Republican and I am a Canadian, we are not trying to change your point of view, but just to try and figure out what went on. And of course, what went on recently was the uh, results of the American presidential election, uh, which turned out to be uh, rather surprising for uh, one of the sides. Uh, so Ken is someone with a bit more of a rooting interest than I. Perhaps you could recount the uh, the feel of your annual election night party as uh, you experienced the uh, surprising to some uh, Obama uh, electoral vote uh, victory over Romney. The uh, feel of the party was, uh, since I knew what the, the early signs would be, uh, the feel of the party was fairly subdued uh, on, the, on the, it's an ambipartisan party, it's both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, joining together to drink and make fun of Fox News commentators, but the uh, you know having having known early that, for example, if Virginia didn't come in fast and Florida uh, didn't come in fast, that we were in trouble. And when New Hampshire was called for Obama, that was a, an early worrying sign. So there was a a degree of uh, sort of uh, it, it, there was not suspense involved necessarily uh despite Carl Rove's best attempt to turn it into a suspenseful count in Ohio it was simply a matter of inevitability and the question of how uh how far we were going to get back up that uh that slope uh to Obama's electoral vote victory and so the feel was was a polite restraint on the part of my democrat friends and the the letdown of having you know having had uh, one side in not just the the political fight, but one side in the cephalogical fight, uh, give up the ghost early. 
And that's, uh, it, it was different than, say, the McCain election in 2008, where every sentient being knew that John McCain was going to get pounded. And the only interesting question was, how much of the House and Senate were we also going to lose? And that's the, the grand narrative, I guess, of the campaign in retrospect, is that this was the revenge of the nerds campaign in which the, uh, and we discussed this in our previous segment about the election, that the uh, there were two sets of fundamentals that were sort of opposed against one another, that if you were to judge by the economic fundamentals, uh, that you would have to predict a Romney win. But if you were looking at the polling data, uh, you would have to predict an Obama win. And in fact, the uh, polling data, data as examined by people who did various degrees of structural analysis and averaging polls of polls were the people who were right. And the uh, people who expected the rules of how politics have always been in terms of where the unemployment number is and who comes out to actually vote in an election, uh, those people like uh, Rove and apparently the entire Romney staff were caught completely flat-footed and they uh, expected to win. And I found it quite shocking and unbelievable uh, just on a human level that since everyone had been predicting a uh, a squeaker that didn't turn out to be quite as big a squeaker, but that they did not even make any compensation for the possibility that they were going to lose. They thought for sure that they had won. And this, I guess, goes to the other big narrative of to what extent the uh, Republican communications machine has become a drawback because it's starting to convince the uh, people operating the communications machine that what they're communicating is actually true and that you had a whole one side of the political battle that was fighting with a hand tied behind its back because they went with the uh, data that confirmed uh, what they wanted to be the case as opposed to what was actually happening out there. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, picking the Republicans as the uh, poster boys for epistemic closure is perhaps overselling the case. Well, in this instance. Yeah. Well, in this specific instance, I think it's hard to say whether or not that was the case, or whether the other thing that we talked about last time, the remarkable um, uh, uh, flaccidity of the Republican uh, political consultant machine also is, is sort of brought to heel. That it's not so much the Republican base that is, um, uh, that is closed off, or even the Republican party apparatus in the sense of the, of, of the, you know, uh, the, the candidates themselves, but their uh, consultants who fundamentally dwelt in this you know, miraculous inner world. I mean, the, the fundamentals uh, of economics, the fundamentals of previous cephalogical uh, experience, they, they didn't, you know, go away. They didn't stop being true. They were uh, out uh, maneuvered, if you will, by Obama's very good campaign machine. And at some level, it's the difference between a really good campaign machine and a really bad campaign machine. Now, obviously, that's not to take anything away from President Obama's, you know, historic success at being only the second or rather the only the third Democrat ever to win two back-to-back -back popular vote uh, majorities uh, and being able to do it f for the first time ever in Democratic Party history without uh, a, a white males or, or working class white males is phenomenal historically. It's, it's just, you know, uncanny that that happens. Romney won independence by I think five points and because uh, Obama had cleverly suppressed uh, white working class turnout in the in the real battleground states. Uh, that wasn't enough. So when when you describe him as having suppressed turnout, how would how did that happen? Well, that, that happened by um, uh, defining Romney as uh, the little man from the Monopoly set uh, throughout the primary season. Isn't suppression a loaded term for that? Normally, we would just consider that you know, effective campaigning. Usually we associate suppression with measures to make it more difficult for people to physically vote. Yeah, I, I don't insist on the term suppression, but obviously uh, the Obama campaign goal was to drive down the number of white working class voters because white working class voters hated Obama and also were not real fond of Romney. And if they could become so just a bit less fond of Romney, they wouldn't come out to vote at all, which is, of course, exactly what happened. And that was a very effectively managed by Rove in the previous cycle, where he did essentially the same thing to Kerry with the uh, swift voting and with the, uh, you know, effete patrician uh, label. Um, and, of course, the, the in a lot of ways exploiting the same 
weaknesses and uh, challenges of affect that unites both Carrie and Romney. Yeah, the difference, of course, being that in Rove's case, there was no attempt to uh, drive down Carrie's negatives amongst, say, uh, women or minorities or other standard constituents of the Democratic Party, because he was uh, he, he he had sort of a um, uh, a number of arrows in his quiver. He thought amongst as, as and indeed turned out to do so in two thousand and four, uh, in terms of the white working class, Catholics, evangelicals, and other uh, r- more Republican constituencies. And, and here, the the big surprise was. Uh, that the Obama team was able to uh, mobilize people who are traditionally not thought of avid voters and bring out a ton more of them. That The really, I think, most amazing number from this campaign is that more people under 30 voted in this election than in the big Obama wave election. And part of that, again, goes back to something we were discussing in a previous segment, is that the uh, Democrats at this point get social media or perhaps just have the voter base who understand uh, social media in a way that the Republicans just haven't grappled with, so that part of that crazy turnout operation was leveraging tools like Facebook to encourage people to vote. Because if you're sort of reminded by a poster or some vague sense of uh, civic duty that you are supposed to be voting, that's not as effective, especially for people who are uh, not yet habituated to be voters as seeing a bunch of people on your Facebook page telling you that they are voting or having your friend contact you directly and remind you to vote. And that the uh, huge contrast here in terms of the re- revenge of the nerd election is that the Obama uh, use of technology and uh, social media communications really paid off, whereas the consultants who feathered their nest creating the Uh, Romney system, that completely melted down. One of the reasons it melted down is that uh, when a surge of data started coming into Romney headquarters on election night, the system took that as a denial of service attack because why would there be a bunch of data flooding in now? (laughs) Yes. No, the, the, I, um, possibly purely for my own sanity, although also I suspect that it's better for the health of the Republic if we don't uh, adduce micro causes like um, uh, Mitt Romney bought his um, uh, computers off the shelf at uh, Best Buy somewhere. Um, the, the Project Orca's collapse, while I- illustrative and in a way comforting, given that if the guy can't manage that, you know, one wonders how he made all that money as a business consultant. Um, the uh, but but the larger point being that when you know under thirties are turning out and increasing their percentage in election, I think that the guy who really gets to take a victory lap here is uh, Neil Strauss. And how the guys who wrote uh, Generations, which posits that there is a real different differentiation in sort of uh, civic, uh, uh, you almost want to say folkways of citizenship between the generations and predicted, and this back, you know, 20 years ago by now, 25 years ago, that the millennial generation, this under 30 generation now would be far more uh, inclined to go out and do things in groups, far more civically identified with the, you know, actual mechanisms of of government society and sure enough uh he's right or or they were right that the the millennials vote uh young in entirely different ways than the generation x my generation and the baby boomers voted uh being a generation with a different relationship to society i think a lot of that is is certainly fostered by social media but i suspect that a lot of it is also fostered by the fact that they're they're a different uh they're a different generation than the generations that made the youth vote um, uh, uh, legendary for its uh, laziness. They're, they're a post-ironic generation, and that makes them uh, want to go out and, and cast their votes. Of course, something political scientists have established is that once you start voting as a young person, that your partisan preferences uh, very often lock in for a long time to come. So uh, given that, when you uh, next meet with the secret masters of republicanism, what advice are you going to give them to deal with this uh, youth wave in general and the changing demographic in uh, broader terms? Well, I mean, the, the lock-in effect is, is, uh, is, is certainly real. I mean, obviously, the highest uh, uh, contingent voting for Romney, I think, uh, generationally, was the people in their 40s, uh, who are all, you know, those of us who came of age under Ronald Reagan. But I think that certainly, you know, there have been plenty of, uh, there, there's plenty of evidence that 
the lock-in is not permanent and that it uh, is not anything like a 60-30 number, which I think was the was the uh, millennial number this election. Um, my advice in the grand tradition of everyone giving advice to the losing party is to do things more like me <laughs> uh, or more like I would like it to be done. Um, I think that obviously if you looked at the Republican primaries uh, and were looking around for where were the young people interested then, it turned out they were all very interested in Ron Paul, that he had the, the you know, crowds of, of college students and young people at his rallies. And he is easily the most unappealing human being to be running, you know, for the Republican uh, nomination that year. And in a field that included Donald Trump and Newt Gingrich, that's really saying something. There was more than one grifter in that crowd. <laughs> yes. But uh, when you, well, grifters are appealing. That's the difference. But, but, but <laughs> well, they, Ron they were, Paul. They were all appealing to somebody. Uh, sort of more libertarian uh, approach uh, is, I think, one that resonates to a, a greater degree with uh, the kids today. And I think you see that in things like uh, the huge generational switch in acceptance of things like gay marriage. And uh, you see it also, uh, not that the two things are necessarily uh, uh, co-valued, but it's a broader libertarian sense in things like the uh, uh, decriminalization of marijuana in Washington and Colorado, both of which were pretty much bipartisan movements against the party bureaucracies of both parties in both states. So I think that if I'm giving uh, my secret masters advice about what the young kids today want, I think what they want is a little more libertarianism and a little less, uh, we told you so, now eat your peas. And uh, Senate candidates who, when they sense a sentence about rape forming on their tongues, will know enough to shift the topic to corn futures before they utter whatever that original sentence was yes, going to be. The, the, the ability of the Republican Party to lose two pro-life states on abortion <laughs> is something that is going to be studied uh, much as <laughs> historians of sports study the uh, career of John Elway. Yeah, so I think there's already <laughs> a, a PhD program in the uh, Schrodenfrode Institute to uh, study that one. The, the, the Department of Pissing Things Away. And on that note, we will... Uh, Exit the politics side. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin, or rather, let's let regional podcaster Justin Muharab <laughs> ask Ken and Robin in this handsome voice question. Hey there, Ken and Robin. This is Justin Mohara from Squid Eye and the Bitter Guy. I just wanted to send you guys a quick voicemail question. Robin, you've in the past mentioned your theory of the one okay game store and how it can keep a really good one from appearing in the market. Would you like to expand on that theory and explain it to the people at home? Thanks, guys. Love the show so far. Bye. Uh, well, Justin, and... Uh... For the viewers at home, Justin is actually one of the longtime players in my Thursday night group. Uh, Justin has heard me talk about my theory of the one okay game store and how it prevents other game stores from coming into being. And I, before we address uh, this, I think we want to move back further to the uh, once incredible importance of the local retail store as a center of gaming culture in a town and how that is changing with uh, the move to more direct sales and electronic sales. Uh, but at one time, the retail location was not just a place that you went to get your games, but it was a center of a community. And the ones that were really well run were the ones that helped to uh, build that community and not only sell people the games that they wanted, but to expand the gaming hobby. And for that reason, you find uh, that there are big regional effects in hobby gaming where a game will penetrate in one area and become really hot. And unless it's one of the very top games that everybody agrees is the number one game, like Dungeons and Dragons or uh, the Warhammer Miniatures game or Magic the Gathering, the ones that lead their categories, the smaller games sometimes have very distinct areas where they're very popular, like Shadow Fist in its heyday, for example, was very popular in New York and in Florida and out on the West Coast. And the reason for that is that they had game stores that lot, grabbed that particular game and promoted it because the 
there was either a group of gamers there who were early adopters and latched onto it, or the retailer uh, thought it was cool and promoted it to people. And you see a correlation also between college towns and uh, towns that have a thriving gaming scene. And because of that, those towns can often support a really uh, good, solid retail store. But not every city is blessed with a great game retail. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that in order to do really well as a game retailer, you have to not only really love adventure games, but you have to love and be really good at retail. And if you love and are really good at retail, chances are you might select something to sell other than adventure games, which are always sort of chancy and difficult. And at different stages have been hard to get started because after a series of uh, closures at different points, because adventure gaming has sort of a boom-bust cycle, or did up until the... Probably our last big boom-bust was uh, the D20, and then there was a little bit of hero clicks, and that has kind of tapered off over the years. But there were times when there would be big waves of store closures as a uh, boom cycle turned into a bust cycle, and gradually loan officers realized that game stores went out of business a lot, and it became harder to get a, a loan to start one. Um, but there are, have always been really great game retailers whose uh, love for both of those things of selling products at a store and of those products being games have uh, really sort of kept communities alive in their uh, respective cities or neighborhoods. And the question then becomes, how do you replicate that? How do you get, you know, more Jerry Corrick's or more Jim Crocker's out there? And I don't think that's something you can manufacture, but certainly having a store that is run by someone who loves games, but is not the most aggressive uh, retailer or, you know, their the store smells like cat or ferret or they let their uh, personal uh, fanish prejudices outweigh the taste of the uh, people that they should be selling games to. If you have a game store like that in a locality that's doing well but isn't great, it's a, another motivating factor for that person who is great at retail and might want to start a game store, would think, well, there's already sort of competition here. I don't think I'm going to jump in. I think instead that I will uh, sell X or Y instead of game products. I think the other sort of side of that coin is that because the marginal return on games is so much lower than the marginal return on, say, sporting goods, you are winding up with a situation where you have to be... Uh, able you you have to invest a great deal more work to get to the same fairly mediocre marginal return such that when a game store is already there and some portion of your market your easy money is being taken up the not notion you have to work for that 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 extra those extra customers that are harder to get to by definition uh means you're putting in even more work for even less return and it's not quite um uh it's not quite an inelastic market but it almost is in that there's a and a, a because of that community effect that you talk about there's a reluctance by gamers to go from game store A to game store B especially if they've got a a, a meetup night or, or whatever and obviously it's far from universal given the number of game retailers who have complained to me about you know Amazon or whatnot uh, uh being a a a real competitor for them but it but it does exist right there's that real crushing thing that happens when someone comes in the store opens a book, flips through it, asks the retailer for their opinion on it, decides to buy it, and says, well, I'm going to go home and buy this on Amazon. And so that's that's a huge problem. That's not just a problem faced by game retailers. That's the entire book sector is dealing with that. And the in a sense, the publishers benefit from that to the extent that they can compete with Amazon and sell direct to the uh, customer, but that raises the question of what will then substitute for the game store as the point of first contact for the new cool thing. And uh, maybe social media will replace that, but you can't replace the sense of community that a, a location-based business gives you. Yeah, or you certainly can't do it now with the tools we have available. Uh, the um, the the notion of the, of the good game store, I, I mean, I've been in some really terrific game stores, but I live in Chicago, which is a city of, you know, uh, 
7 million people metropolitan area. And the good game store is way up on the north side and didn't even exist until about two or three years ago. There was, in the city of Chicago, not the suburbs, but in the actual city of Chicago, there was, I think, no game store, much less no good game store for a long, long time. And part of that is, I guess, because of the, um, uh, the, the, the credit risk that you were talking about for, uh, for banks uh, loaning to people who are opening game stores. And I think part of it is just my argument that running a game store involves chasing so many marginal customers for such a relatively low rate of return that almost by definition, if you love retail and know retail, you know enough not to open a game store. And I'm always amazed when uh, people like uh, Jim Crocker or Chris Hanrahan, you know, every day show up and open, a, you know, open their doors again, because I'm sure that with their level of skill, they could be selling, you know, artisanal cheeses or something else with a much better uh, turn rate and a much better uh, marginal profit. And then use their, you know, their their actual living wage to to buy games on their own. Uh, it may in fact be the case that it's easier to run a game store in a smaller uh, university city than it is in a big city like Chicago or Toronto, because just geographically, the gamers are going to be clustered together near a campus uh, in a university town, whereas they're going to be dispersed across a big metropolitan area uh, and. Uh, Toronto, sadly, has had a bunch of good game stores, but it's been a generation since there was a really great one. Uh, however, uh, what we do have, uh, mere steps from my apartment, is what might be the new model for a storefront community, and that's a place called Snakes and Lattes. And although they do sell games, they're specialized in the uh, sort of German board game or casual board game area rather than uh, role-playing or uh, miniatures or anything, but they are a cafe space that reserves tables and uh, people show up there on an appointment basis to play Catan or Carcassonne or, you know, or even Trivial Pursuit together. And they, uh, when they opened, I was thinking, oh, that's a, a glorious uh, suicidal move and I, I'm going to be sad when they close in three months. And in fact, not only did they not close, but they have had to expand into the storefront next to them in order to accommodate all of the people who want to come and play games there. And they've become a real locus of the local gaming community, and they uh, run events now at uh, Fan Expo, uh, speaking of things Justin Maharab is involved with, and uh, through that have become the uh, great community builders but the actual sale of those games is really more of a sideline, and what they're uh, selling is treats and refreshments. Yeah, I think that uh, games as a sideline is a is a generally underutilized uh, space. Obviously, we talked about Jim Crocker, who runs a terrific comic book store with a terrific game section in it. It's not fundamentally modern myths is not primarily a game store. I I don't know what his percentages are, but I think he does the majority of his business as a comic book store, which again is something that I'm sure is being hammered by electronic uh, uh, book sales and the general fecklessness of the publisher, just like our sector is to a lesser degree, or at least to a lesser degree on the second part of that. Um, and, and so I think that when you start sort of identifying your customers, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say holistically, but, you know, someone who's interested in social nights out in a coffee shop space might also be interested in a, in a German board game, especially if, you know, Strauss and Howe is right, and our new uh, generation of, of rising young adults are more community-oriented and uh, like doing things in groups better than, than we did in our surly youth. And so I, I think that, you know, looking at those kind of spaces is maybe the, the wave of the future. I don't know if we're going to get back to the glory days of, you know, a game shop in every mall where you could buy Dungeons & Dragons and Traveler and Call of Cthulhu, because I don't think that we're going to get back to those you know, sheer numbers of gamers. And I, you know, I hope that the, the, the board game boom that's occurring in America now, uh, sort of a, a knock-on effect from the board game booms in Europe, will, you know, filter us down some new customers. But I don't, I don't think necessarily that recruiting 30-year-olds to playing role-playing games is as easy or uses the same set of creative muscles as recruiting 12-year-olds to play them. Right, and we now live in a universe where you know, young teens find out what they're interested in through the internet. And 
you know, if they're interested in uh, Japanese pop music, but they live in Omaha, Nebraska, that's no barrier to them. So as uh, people who want to make adventure gaming bigger, the question is, you know, we want to see these game stores survive out of uh, a sense of uh, nostalgia and a, a sense of a desire to see a community, but there may be you know, new communities forming that are, uh, as everything else is changing, the way that communities form is, is undoubtedly changing as well. And I hope it is one that at least still has room for those uh, great game stores, if not the good game stores. Well, again, I mean, one of the advantages to being in, in a city like Chicago uh, is that you can sort of see uh, that uh, a, a, a strongly identifiable niche will live a long time. There's a terrific store called the Dusty Groove in Chicago that primarily sells uh, vinyl, vinyl records. And it also sells a, a good number of uh, CDs, uh, but they're sort of, you know, international jazz CDs and Italian movie soundtrack CDs and audiophile uh, sort of CDs, not, uh, you know, Nicki Minaj or Justin Bieber or whatever. And so I don't say that every town in America has a Dusty Groove, but it gives me hope that if there is still a really good store selling vinyl records in Chicago, that there will be really good game stores like um, uh, Endgame or Modern Myths or uh, The Source that still function, you know, in markets that are sort of, however, you know, uh, perfectly middle-sized uh, in terms of uh, a possible tabletop game population. And then the, we'll be able to explore these other uh, sort of, uh, marketing models while we can rest on that spine of really good game stores. Uh, and on that note, I think uh, that question has been asked and answered. it's time to venture into yet another hut. Now, this is a hut that we have left unrevealed until now. Uh, we had to process, uh, listeners, all of your security clearances, but now we're finally uh, ready to uh, hit the button under the floor and we'll rise on a hydraulic level and reveal the Tradecraft hut, in which we discuss uh, matters related to espionage and uh, international security in both uh, fiction and reality. And in reality, we've had a big national security story, if not an espionage story per se, pop up, uh, which is the resignation of CIA director and former uh, top general David Petraeus after his affair with his uh, biographer has been revealed. And uh, this is uh, still an, a developing story as we speak, but I thought that this might occasion a more general discussion of the role of uh, sexual scandal and national security and espionage, both in uh, fiction and in history. So, Ken, what uh, interesting factoids about the national security apparatus in 2012 has this story inadvertently thrown up for you? Well, there's the shocking fact that apparently the CIA director and uh, <laughs> sends his uh, girlfriend emails on the same computer that he gets uh, classified uh, reports on, which is, I think, probably more terrifying than any other single revelation that could come out of this. Uh, you, I mean, you, you, whenever you see a spy show, you're, uh, we were just watching uh, Nikita the other night, and uh, the, the, the guy from Division, has he's been getting his, uh, his, his briefings on an awesome little uh, uh, iPad tablet-looking thing. And we were joking that, of course... You know, the, the bad guy would know that he's not really FBI because he has a computer that was made this century. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you, you sort of, you, you know, on an intellectual level that everything uh, that the government has, uh, certainly uh, for their intelligence service, is far less awesome than whatever got built as the set of, um, uh, you know, 24 or Navy NCIS or, or whatever show it is you're watching. Yeah, uh, so there's, there's the actual war room from which... Obama and cabinet followed the 
uh, Death of Bin Laden, which looks like basically the set of The Office mm-hmm. <laughs> versus, yeah. you know, the, a beautiful Ken Adam designed war room from 1964 and Dr. Strangelove still beats the pants off of uh, that anonymous <laughs> little cubbyhole. Right. The, um, the, 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 the most interesting parallel in, um, in fiction that I can think of is in the TV show Alias, where there was the secret evil organization, the, the, the SV7 or whatever it was, that, uh, Sydney Bristow, SV6 was, was, uh, it was infiltrating, and they had all the flashy, uh, lasers and, and screens and, and, uh, it looking like, you know, the deck of the, of the Enterprise in a, in a, in a sequel or remake. And then, they would cut to the real CIA, which was a bunch of drab cubicles in a hallway somewhere. And I always enjoyed that sort of visual signal of the nature of the fantasy of that show, which, which, uh, which sadly is something that this particular uh, hilarious so far scandal has uh, uncovered. And the, the fact that apparently the reason that the FBI guy pushed this investigation forward was that he was really, really hot for the girl who Petraeus's mistress had been accusing, so far as we know, groundlessly of um, uh, uh, being a rival for Petraeus's affection. And so the FBI guy is sending her, you know, shirtless pictures of himself. And that's why he stays on the case. It's not that he's driven to uncover a national security threat. It's that he thinks uh, this woman, Jill Kelly, is super hot and wants to uh, impress her with his awesome FBI-ness. There are certainly huge soap opera elements going on here, that's for sure. And then the fact that she may or may not have been carrying on with the general in charge of the troops in Afghanistan, George Allen. It just, it, 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 you know, it, it, Marx is apparently wrong. This one's beginning as farce. And uh, God knows what it will repeat as. My favorite uh, little tradecraft secret was that uh, Petraeus and uh, Broadwell were communicating via a trick. Uh, and the phrase in a... In a I think the AP report was known to terrorists and teenagers alike, which is that instead of actually sending each other email, you give each other the uh, same password to the same email account and just write the messages in the draft folder. You don't send it, but that enables your partner to go in and read what you've written so that you have your uh, steamy conversation uh, in a supposedly uh, untraceable uh, format, except I guess uh, if you're doing it in Gmail and you've uh, sent a uh, anonymous threatening letter to this other uh, well-connected woman who you are concerned is possibly going to uh, get with your boyfriend now that he's dumped you. Um, the other interesting detail that I, I thought was quite piquant was that uh, apparently in the CIA, uh, having an affair is not against regulations provided that you inform both uh, your boss at the CIA and your wife or husband, I guess, as it were. Um, And that would suggest to me that, in fact, uh, I'm not sure that's really an affair. I think that's open relationships are okay if you're in the CIA and not the kind of open relationship that you don't tell your wife that you're in. Well, I mean, given that the uh, CIA was made up entirely of Yale graduates, uh, for 25 years. Obviously, their corporate culture is going to include the politely accepted mistress. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just going to happen. Uh, it's the FBI, I assume, that has all manner of um, uh, uh, tight-fisted concerns about who you're allowed to sleep with, and the ideal answer would be no one ever. And of course, when this first broke, one of the sort of questions in the Twitterverse was, well, well, why does he have to resign over just a, a little affair? And the answer is, of course, that he is not the Secretary of Transportation, that uh, (laughs) theoretically uh, one can be blackmailed over uh, something that you're trying to keep from the uh, uh, world and your wife, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what makes uh, having an illicit affair a national security threat. Yeah. The, uh, the, the notion that it's, that it becomes a counterintelligence question. I mean, over and above the question of could Petraeus be blackmailed? There's the question that uh, has he given uh, his mistress access to his CIA accounts? And apparently, either he had given them to her, or in the way of all cheating men everywhere, he discovered that at least half of the women in the equation turn out to be really great detectives. <laughs> <laughs> she was able to uncover his uh, CIA accounts and start uh, uh, running amuck in them. And that's a break, because whether or not Petraeus could be blackmailed, whether or not he would have that great Wellingtonian presence of mind to say, publish and be damned with you, sir. Uh, there's the chance that obviously 
you know, the Russians or Chinese or whoever could be putting pressure on the other end of that equation on uh, Broadwell to get her to, you know, rifle around in the CIA accounts. And it's just not only is it a question of blackmail, it's a question of actual access to, you know, classified networks. Because in the WikiLeaks era, it's not even so much the uh, Russians or the Chinese that are the uh, enemy. And certainly, you know, the Al-Qaeda network does not run moles and engage in that sort of traditional uh, tradecraft at any rate. But uh, the press, it's the uh, political structure does not want uh, embarrassing revelations uh, getting out. And that's uh, as big a crime to them, if not more so, than uh, revealing a schematic or uh, a plan about troop movements. Well, it certainly is uh, going to be interesting to run a, um, uh, a Google News search to see how many times uh, Benghazi comes up after it became a sex scandal uh, and before when it was just a security breach. Uh, that is um, certainly the, one of those, uh, I guess, upsides of the business salaciously speaking. Right. And it, I think there, there's still sort of a struggle to make a broader scandal out of this. Uh, certainly, senators on both sides of the aisle are in high dudgeon that there was a piece of uh, saucy information that somebody else got before they did. Mm -hmm. uh, but whether that uh, really amounts to anything, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, so, in the historical sense, though, I associate the uh, security sex scandal uh, with our uh, uh, British cousins, as it were. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, when when one is faced with, it's like saying one one associates uh, success in marathons with Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> of course, one does. They're just so much better at it than we are. Um, and so, of course, you have the Profumo affair. You have the fact that the you know quartet of moles were uh, united by uh, what was then the illicit sexual fact of merely being homosexual at a time when it was illegal. Um, but I think of American security scandals as being driven more by ideology or uh, by money. And is that uh, the case? Are there other great, interesting security sex scandals in the uh, American sphere that I'm not remembering? In the American sphere, most of our scandals certainly are genuinely threatening uh, scandals of the, uh, of the Cold War era were um, driven by ideology or by ego. Uh, the the Hansen case, for example, or the Aldrich, or Aldrich Ames were were basically just people angry that they weren't being you know paid enough attention to and treated the, like the precious snowflakes they were, and it was very much a well I'll show you I'll turn to communism and then they'll win. It was emo without es my help. espionage, right? Yeah, and, but um, obviously we don't know necessarily what kind of um, uh, what what kind of uh, pressure was taken off the mob by the fact that. John F. Kennedy was sharing a mistress with Sam Giancana. Um, there's people uh, used to say, well, it was because J. Edgar Hoover was not interested in investigating the mafia. But when the attorney general <laughs> is, uh, you know, at the very least covering up the the president's affair with the head of the Cosa Nostra uh, mistress, then that has some sort of knock-on effect. One has to imagine. There was more than one person who had a weird mob connection <laughs> <laughs> during that era, as in the eras uh, before then. Yeah. But in terms of the the the, the great um, uh, the the great honey traps and uh, and and female uh, sex scandals, we you know either because of our um, uh, puritanical culture or because it's just uh, more difficult for the uh, for the bad guys to to uh, have a uh, to run a convincing honey trap on us. I don't think that we've had anything certainly on the on the high level notion of of uh, the Perfumo scandals or. The, the, the Cambridge Four, there's, you know, again, we don't necessarily know what might or might not have been going on at a lot of sort of uh, deputy director levels at various places. And certainly um, uh, Marcus Wolf, who ran the uh, what they called the Romeo division, uh, well, actually ran the whole East German Stasi, but he had a division of Romeos who would go in and seduce um, uh, uh, unmarried women in NATO command positions, not just German uh, women. Uh, one suspects that there was at least some degree of penetration, pun slightly intended, going on on that front. I, I think so far we've done fairly well to avoid egregious non sequiturs, or uh, sorry, egregious double entendres. <laughs> yes. Well, given the topic, yeah, I suppose. Um, the uh, There was, of course, uh, Bell Boyd, who was the uh, Confederate uh, uh, debutante slash uh, spy, 
who uh, received, I believe, a presidential pardon on the basis of her offering instead of the, she was going to have to stay in prison. She was going to write her memoirs. And uh, so there was a, a degree, so there was some sort of uh, hanky panky going on. Although of course uh, the, you know, defenders of the Confederacy say that it was all innocent flirtation and she would never have uh, sullied Southern womanhood by going so far <laughs> as to actually sleep with the people in question. <laughs> yes, that would never, people only started having sex in about 1964, didn't they? Yeah, I think it was uh, the Goldwater campaign, actually, that drove them to it. Um. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I think we have uh, explored uh, the history of uh, sexy spy scandals, and uh, we can now begin the elaborate locking-up procedure that allows us to close the Tradecraft hut and conclude yet another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website where you can leave murmurings and mutterings at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, I'm at Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.